So it's uh, really good to be with you once again. It's been a long time since uh, I, I preached uh, with the Baptists. Probably the last vacancy, actually. <laughs> I get drafted in. Uh, two things for me to get used to uh, this morning. Uh, one, we're going to have a break in the middle of my talk for uh, a little chat about what I've said in the first half, and hopefully what I say in the second half will be relevant to what you've discussed. Uh, the other thing I've got to get used to is the layout of this room. I'm used to long, thin churches that I talk to people down there at the back. So this time I've got to get used to swinging around and talking to people. And there's a danger that I will intensively interrogate the people right in front of me, but, but not come to either side. So, um, so it, as I say, it's a, a joy to be with you. My agent actually took uh, two bookings for uh, Ruddington Baptist Church this autumn. Uh, one was due to be for uh, John the Evangelist uh, on this day. Uh, and next month I was due to preach on his brother James, another of the core group of 12 disciples that I understand you're learning about in your talks. Uh, sadly, however, the Thanksgiving of some baby or other got in the way of the November talk. So we've agreed that I'll combine my reflections on John and James into a single talk this morning. And this actually is very appropriate because James and John came as a pair. The sons of Zebedee and his wife, who, if we cross-match the gospel accounts, we can deduce was called Salome. And she was probably the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So James and John, the elder James always being named first, were probably Jesus' cousins. And we're told that they were fishermen with their father, Zebedee. However, contrary to our 21st century perspectives, they may have been relatively wealthy, as they seem in Mark chapter 1 to own their boats, and these were largely manned by hired men. Also, in Luke 8 and Mark 15, Salome is identified as one of the wealthy women who supported Jesus' ministry. Anyway, whatever their relationship between them, Jesus knew them well enough to give James and John a nickname. And in Mark 3, he's recorded as having called them Boanerges, which literally means sons of rage, implying that they were impetuous, and liable to fly off the handle. English translations tend to tone down this implied criticism by translating Boanerges as sons of thunder, which is what I use going forward. And there is evidence that the nickname is not inappropriate, not least from Luke chapter 9, when John is so incensed by someone who is not part of the group, daring to cast out Jesus in, uh, de demons in Jesus' name, that he goes to forcibly stop him from doing so. Later, both James and John were very enthusiastic to get Jesus' blessing on their little plan to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village that hadn't been as friendly to them as they would have liked. Thankfully, Jesus was the boss, and we're told that Jesus rebuked them before moving on to another village. They clearly took some controlling, these sons of thunder. But it also seems that they were a key part of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter. 
On several important occasions, these three accompanied Jesus to the exclusion of the other disciples. Firstly, at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, and then they saw Jesus in his glory at the transfiguration, and finally they were entrusted to accompany Jesus in his final prayers at the Garden of Gethsemane. They were among the closest of his followers, despite their tendency to unreasonable rage. However, the most infamous example of James and John causing maximum trouble comes later in Jesus' ministry on the road at Jericho, just before the final journey into Jerusalem. And in the story told in our reading from Matthew Gospel, chapter 20, it's their mother, Salome, that they used to try to catch Jesus by surprise. If, G if Salome was indeed Jesus' aunt, Imagine his surprise when he finds her kneeling in front of him with a request. What do you want me to do for you? He asks, perhaps a little warily. It's not a modest request that her sons have asked her to make. She says, let one of them sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So basically they're saying, if as you say you are really king of Israel and the whole world, we want to be your key men to get the best part of the action. It was not a subtle approach. But if you think about it, the approach is also decidedly underhand. There are 12 chosen core disciples who have been intensively trained by Jesus for over two years. But the sons of thunder think that it's okay to sidle up to him and try to secure the two best jobs for themselves leaving the other ten out in the cold. Jesus' response is outside my immediate brief today, but the sheer impudence of their request is evident when the passage says that the other ten became indignant with James and John. I wonder what that looked like. A shouting match? Or perhaps even a fist fight on the road to Jerusalem? These were ordinary working men. I somehow don't think they would be politely expressing mild indignation. The situation clearly needed a bit of people management, and Jesus sits them all down and tells them a few home truths about the nature of the life of service and of sacrifice. I'm told that the name of your series of talks is Learning from the Twelve Disciples. But at first sight, James and John the sons of thunder seem to have very little to offer, despite being in Jesus' inner circle. From their performance thus far, it looks as if one might not expect much from James and John in their continual, continuing lives of discipleship. Their nature seems to be impetuous, self-centered, and perhaps more than a little entitled. So at this point, we're going to take a quick break and Rachel's going to give you a couple of questions to discuss. Yes, I'm back on, right. So you've had a, a, a chat about failing disciples, so now we'll find out what Jesus does with the sons of thunder, James and John. Or will we? Because the narrative changes at this point. The final occasion when James and John are mentioned together 
is when they and Peter fail to watch with Jesus as he prays in Gethsemane. After this point, James largely disappears from the New Testament narrative. He's not mentioned in the crucifixion narratives and only indirectly in the resurrection narratives where in John's own Gospels we are told that the sons of Zebedee were present at the Sea of Tiberias at the the miracle of the haul of fish. But only John and Peter have speaking parts in this action. James is silent. James is then named by Luke in the book of Acts as being present at Pentecost, but thereafter James is not mentioned again in the New Testament, except briefly and importantly at the beginning of Acts chapter 12. But I'll come back to James a little later. Let's stay with John, because he moves on to be one of the key figures in the development of Christianity. John's own account of the crucifixion has him standing not far from the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother, his own mother, Salome, and a couple of others. John's subsequent activity places him at the center of the group of apostles. He was Peter's constant companion in Judea after Pentecost, notably without James. He was active in bold witness in miracles and in trials in front of the Sanhedrin. He seems to have remained a strong leader of the church in Jerusalem and was still in this role more than 15 years later when Paul visited in AD 47. And Paul speaks of their meeting in Galatians 2. When John left, Jerusalem is unclear, but there's a strong tradition that he was later based in Ephesus with a ministry in the churches of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And it was here that he wrote prodigiously. His authorship of the Gospel of John and of the Epistles, 1, 2, and 3 John, is generally well accepted. And John is also traditionally accredited with the authorship of the book of Revelation. The attribution isn't uncontested, but it does make a lot of sense. The book of Revelation also suggests that because of his faith, John had been exiled by the Romans to live on the island of Patmos, where he lived the life of a hermit before he returned to Ephesus. And it was in Ephesus that Arrhenius records that he died at a very old age in the days of the emperor Trajan. So that's just before the turn of the first century. And the maths does work. As John was most likely younger than Jesus, he could be an old man in his 90s at the beginning of Trajan's reign. And it does seem that he was very old and infirm in his last year. As Jerome records the charming story that in his final years, John was so weak that he was carried to meetings by the young men of the church of Ephesus. And he used to simply repeat again and again the phrase, little children love one another. So we find that John, after being a rather embarrassing son of thunder, lives a life of faith, a life of sacrifice, a life of witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the fullest possible sense. His is a life lived to the full, a life of significant impact, both in what he did and in the anointed words that he wrote. 
It is fair to say that John gave the world the deepest insights into the life and purposes of his Lord. Words particularly about love, such as those in 1 John 4, which Anne has read to us. So after a poor start, John showed what a life lived with Christ looked like. He clearly made a journey of discipleship, growing in the fruits of the Spirit, and moving on from being one of the rather calamitous sons of thunder to become the apostle of love. But what about his big brother, James? As we've seen, in the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, James and John were spoken of in one breath. Like John, it seems that James was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus and to the coming of the Spirit in power at Pentecost. But then he seems to disappear. I said earlier that he appears just once more in the biblical accounts. And it is in Acts 12, where after Luke writes about Barnabas and Paul going to Antioch, which we can date to around AD 46, we are then simply told, about that time, King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. And that's it. That is the end of the record of St. James. Don't get confused with St. James, the brother of Jesus, who became a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem and is purported to have written the epistle of James. Not the same guy. St. James, brother of John, disciple of Jesus, and one half of the sons of thunder, was killed by Herod Agrippa in AD 46, the first apostle of Jesus to be martyred. James had been at the core of Jesus' ministry. He was among the first to join him. He heard his teaching, he witnessed his resurrection, but he was snuffed out, seemingly without having made anything like the same mark as his brother John. What a waste. It seems to be a tragedy, an awful mistake. After being a key player in the plotline, James fades into the background, and then he's written out of the script. What are we to make of the contrasting stories of the Sons of Thunder? And importantly, what is there here for us to learn? Well, let's take this a step at a time. Let's first look again at the extraordinary story of John, a story that demonstrates that God can work within, with the, the most unpromising material. The Spirit of God transforms. The impetuous, glory-seeking, self-important son of thunder that was John was transformed into the apostle of love, the writer of some of the most profound and inspiring material in our Bibles. He was a man who, through a life of regular persecution, was refined into a spiritual father, beloved by all he met. Don't ever think that you can't be changed. Just look at this man, at the witness that John became. He was the writer of those beautiful verses that we heard, and from all these things we can know that with God, Nothing is impossible. John, the arrogant son of thunder, was transformed. The second thing that we can learn from James and John is that history isn't necessarily going to tell your story. 
You see, I think that we don't know much about the story of James after Pentecost, simply because Luke, the writer of Acts, and Paul, the author of approaching a third of the New Testament, didn't know him. He had died before Luke and Paul came on the scene. The book of Acts focuses on Peter and then Paul, people Luke had met. John was mentioned from time to time in Acts and, the, and in the letters of Paul, as he was known to them and he played a part in their stories. As Luke collected his material, he may well have also talked to John and quite, also, uh, quite possibly also to Mary, Jesus' mother. He tells their story and James is only a regular figure in the Gospels because he was there with Peter and John. And to confirm my point, think how much we know about the lives of the other disciples. Very little. Like John and James in their early dealings with Jesus, we can be obsessed with our legacies, about the mark that we're going to make on the world, about how our story will be told. We want to be the heroes and heroines of timeless stories, but the truth for most of us is that we will be forgotten within a couple of generations, if that. James, as he faced Herod's sword, perhaps realized that the only real audience for his life was Jesus. It's our legacy with God that matters. History is very partial and is unlikely to tell our story. How will we live our lives differently if Jesus is the only true audience for our lives? the real audience who will remember every detail of our lives for all eternity. The third thing I think that we can learn from James is to reflect on the persecuted church in our own day. Who is telling the story of those Christians who every day are being silenced for their faith, who are being written out of history? In Herod Agrippa, James came up against someone who was prepared to kill Christians to curry favor with the Jewish leaders. Then, as now, religious violence against people who proclaimed love and peace was easy. Perhaps we should be louder in telling the story of those persecuted for their Christian faith in our time. Their persecutors are seeking to silence them. Perhaps we should refuse to let them be written out of history. A further thing to think about might be our attitudes towards martyrdom. I've always been a little disturbed by the high view of martyrdom in the book of Revelation, where those who have died for their faith are in the front rank of the redeemed and they constantly cry for justice. Isn't this the way leading to dangerous religious obsessions and even death cults? But perhaps understanding that John's own brother was himself a martyr helps us to understand John's insistence that great sacrifice brings great reward in the new creation. Perhaps while being aware of the dangers of glorifying martyrdom, we can begin to see that those like James, to whom such a death has come, should be honored at least as highly as those who have had the opportunity to live out faithful, full lives of service. And the flip side of this argument should also be considered. People like us live with amazingly little persecution for our faith. But shouldn't that make us determined to give our best for our God in every moment that we're given? If only because others 
have had that opportunity taken from them. Maybe the loss of his brother and fellow son of thunder made John even more determined to live for his Lord as fully as he could, determined to take every opportunity to declare the faith for which his brother had died. As I suggested before, perhaps we should view our lives as being lived for an audience of one. We live out our calling in the presence of our Lord, mindful of all those whose opportunity for such a life of witness has been cut short. I've suggested that James was largely erased from history by the king who beheaded him. But let me just modify that perspective a little as I close. There is a later tradition associated with St. James. And because it's later, it's virtually impossible to verify. But this tradition suggests that St. James left Jerusalem, probably around AD 33, at the time of the martyrdom of Stephen. The tradition says that he traveled to Spain to spread the good news of Jesus there. And this would explain the absence of Jesus from further narratives up to AD, 40, AD 46, when the same tradition says that a vision of Mary told him to return from Spain to Judea, where he met his death. The tradition then says that his followers returned with his body to Spain, where it was eventually interred in a church in northwest Spain at a place called Compostela. The place is now called Santiago de Compostela, Santiago being Spanish for St. James. The church is now a cathedral and is the destination for the Camino to Santiago, the way of St. James, a network of pilgrim trails in Europe which became a major pilgrim route in the 10th century, being declared by the Pope in the 15th century to be one of the three great pilgrimages of Christendom. And this route has in recent years enjoyed a renaissance, despite our secular age. Over 300,000 pilgrims now walk the Camino de Santiago every year. I very much hope that each year, many of these pilgrims take the time and effort to meditate on the life and the martyrdom of St. James, the son of thunder that Herod Agrippa thought that he had silenced.